KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll talk about the coming fight against Trump and Trumpism. Gary Young will comment. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about the new film from India, White Tiger. It's a rags-to-riches parable, part satire and part melodrama, that critiques the cruelties and injustices of Indian society today. But first, we're at the end of week one of the Biden presidency. I guess you could call this the best week in four years. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Biden's first week started with all those executive orders undoing the worst of Trump's executive orders. Biden stopped construction of the border wall, ended the Muslim travel ban, canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, and rejoined the World Health Organization. But of course, we have this double crisis, the pandemic and the economic collapse, and Biden has the pandemic economic stimulus he's submitting to Congress, $1.9 trillion. Not everybody is enthusiastic about this. Uh, that's true. I, I should add, in, in some ways, perhaps the biggest change uh, that the last week uh, signaled was simply the absence of abusive and idiotic tweets uh, coming from the White House uh, or wherever uh, the past president was. So that, that we, we, we should... Uh, factor that into, uh, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, why, why the climate is better. Yes, uh, the major uh, activity that the Biden presidency is about right now is getting that $1.9 trillion stimulus bill through Congress. It now appears that they're going to try to get it through, uh, through a process called budget reconciliation. And to do that before... Um, uh, the February 9th commencement of the impeachment trial that will be held in the Senate. Um, so far, the comments of Republican senators, uh, even the Republican senators who were not wholly in Trump's camp, senators like uh, Mitt Romney, uh, suggest that there'd be virtually no Republican support for the uh, stimulus package. And so therefore, it's increasingly likely that the Democrats will be able to put it through uh, by virtue of the, the budget reconciliation process, which only requires a simple majority, not the uh, 60 votes that normal legislation, alas, does require. But this means that every Republican in the Senate will vote against sending every American family $2,000 of COVID relief, something even Donald Trump thought was a good idea. Well, I think that's one reason why the Democrats are particularly eager to hold this vote. Uh, there are a lot of popular things in that bill. And you know, it's always possible that there may be one Republican senator or two who votes for it. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it includes all kinds of popular measures, such as uh, the remaining $1,400 of the 2000 uh, that even Donald Trump had, uh, had favored uh, sending out. Uh, it includes uh, a booster of, of increased sums for unemployment insurance, uh, some paid leave uh, uh, requirements uh, as well. 
Um, it also, in current form, uh, includes uh, uh, increasing the federal minimum wage to $15. Now, every time uh, a minimum wage increase has been on a state initiative ballot, uh, whether the state is blue, purple, or red, the state's voters have passed them, most recently in Florida uh, in November, and where it required a 60% uh, voter support, and it got it. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in that package that uh, the Democrats think are not only good for the economy, but good for them politically, because Republicans will be voting against them. And there's also a lot of money for vaccine production, vaccine distribution, increased testing, uh, and uh, public health uh, programs at state and local governments. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the, the Biden administration is, is uh, beginning to say that it can purchase uh, a significantly greater number of, uh, of vaccines uh, so that it's possible uh, most of the nation can be vaccinated by summer, um, which would be faster than the, uh, the pace it was at uh, in the waning days of Donald Trump's presidency. One smaller thing that we need to talk about here at the intersection of the pandemic and the economy, Biden has signed an executive order requiring OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to uh, develop new safety standards to protect workers from the virus. Uh, uh, OSHA under Trump, of course, did none of that. You might think that uh, that asking the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to uh, enact safety and health standards would not be a big deal, but actually it is. Particularly during a pandemic. Uh, you know, uh, th this was a result of the Trump administration and its labor secretary, Eugene Scalia's uh, aversion to any government regulation. You, you, yes, you would think that the mandate of OSHA included setting enforceable standards for how workers are treated during a pandemic. Uh, in fact, they did not. And so you had uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of workers in meatpacking plants dying of, uh, of COVID because they, they themselves were packed closely together uh, in, uns in conditions that are unsafe even when there is no pandemic. So. Uh, you know, uh, this, this was an outrageous failure of, of, uh, of government, uh, and clearly uh, with the new Labor Department, which will be now headed by uh, uh, Marty Walsh, the Secretary of Labor, and California's Julie Sue as Deputy Secretary of Labor, uh, that's going to be a, a, a quick and decisive change. It's coming too late for many thousands of Americans who've already died um, from COVID contracted in their workplaces. But this is certainly a better late than never provision. And uh, what is this, do you know what is the schedule for Senate confirmation of Marty Walsh as Secretary of Labor? That is I don't. Uh, you know, the Republicans have been somewhat slow walking the confirmations. I think as of today, there have been uh, three secretaries confirmed at, uh, at uh, state and treasury and defense. Uh, so that's going to be a, a while yet. But Biden is putting in acting temporary secretaries at uh, pretty much every department. And I think that will be, suffice to get OSHA 
uh, geared up to do its what historically has been its mission, except generally during Republican presidencies and more particularly during Donald Trump's. We got to get some other key Biden nominees confirmed by the Senate right away, especially his attorney general nominee Merrick Garland and his Homeland Security Secretary nominee Alejandro Mayorkas. The attorney general is the person who appoints the new U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia who will prosecute the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And the Secretary of Homeland Security will launch investigations of domestic terrorists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and anti-government militias. These are things we don't want to wait for. Right. And and Homeland Security also has cybersecurity under its uh, purview. So there's a lot of important work that needs to be done there. Uh, I would assume that eventually uh, these folks will be confirmed by the Senate, but it's, uh, it's kind of a drip, 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 slow process that we're seeing right now. So we're going to get action from OSHA. Uh, there's also a Biden's Buy American initiative. Again, you wouldn't think this would be a big deal, but right now it is. Well, you know, I mean, in, in essence, uh, the, the whole provision is necessary because obviously, over the last 30, really 40 years, we have gutted American manufacturing so that so many pro, uh, products that uh, people buy on the, uh, when they go shopping are, are, are made abroad. What, what was particularly uh, significant, I think, about uh, President Biden's executive order uh, was that it, it noted uh, basically how much that the federal government purchases is not actually made in the United States. And there were some figures I came across that that showed almost half of the contracts the government puts out uh, to, for companies to bid on to produce for the government uh, are open to uh, foreign companies. Um, and that reflects just the decimation of American manufacturing. So the, the, the theory behind this is if the government is emphasizing buying domestically, this will help gin up, uh, you know, uh, the abandoned uh, uh, American factory and, and, and restart uh, Americans making things again like they used to. And, you know, the, the fact that this eroded over 40 years was, was, was really, you know, that, that's a subject to be dealt with under political economy, not just economy. This, marked the, this was a reflection of the rise of finance and of Wall Street, which was telling American manufacturers we can get higher profits if you go abroad to produce because labor is cheaper. Um, and finance got big, the manufacturing sector got smaller and American labor got smaller, which was always the uh, primary advocate for domestic production. So, you know, this is a power imbalance that will take some time to redress. And I think it's going to be much more effective than uh, Biden's executive order will be the stipulations in his infrastructure proposal for uh, to do those purchases domestically as well. But it's, it's really key uh, economically and it's also key politically because in many ways, this is his primary outreach to uh, the post-industrial Midwest, to people in the working class of all races, many of whom uh, supported Trump because he talked the talk on domestic production, though he didn't walk the walk. Um, so it's, it's, it's important economically and it's important politically. 
speaking with Harold Meyerson. Uh, Harold wrote about the Biden's Buy American initiative at the American Prospect. Harold, I was disappointed in your piece that the statistics you have on this are way out of date. Yeah. Well, it turns out that the last time the government did a study of where the government was uh, soliciting contracts from uh, was 11 years ago in 2010, um, which, which, you know, but that's reflective of the fact that it was just taken as a natural order of things that everything was offshore and uh, we didn't really have to uh, study it. It's just a, a fact of nature. Of course, it's not a fact of nature. It's a fact of who's got political power to affect the, uh, the substance of the American economy. But there you are. Uh, unfortunately, the last study was done in 2010, and here we are 11 years later. You know, we've changed the name of our show. We are no longer Trump Watch. We are now living in the USA because we don't have to watch Trump anymore. But there is one thing that Trump did uh, on his last day, which I thought was worthy of watching. Uh, two Republican congressmen, asked Trump for pardons for their part in the attack on the Capitol, and Trump turned them down. Arizona Republican Paul Gosar and Arizona Republican Andy Biggs. What do you make of them asking for pardons, and what do you make of Trump turning them down? Well, clearly, you know, each of them must have awakened in the middle of the night and said, uh, <laughs> I am in big trouble. <laughs> The interesting thing is why Trump turned them down. It may be that he didn't want to consider what they did a crime because that possibly suggested that what he did was a crime since these two members of Congress did not themselves storm the Congress because they were already physically there. Uh, but you know they might have been viewed as inciting the crowd to do it. Well, uh, Donald Trump uh, should be viewed as inciting the crowd to do it. But so if it was a pardonable offense, forget the adjective, it was an offense. And Donald Trump didn't want to, you know, indicate that what he did was an offense. One last thing. On Monday, the House delivered its impeachment article to the Senate, which uh, will lead to a trial beginning on February 9th to determine whether Trump is guilty of incitement of insurrection. Um, the the argument for impeaching Trump uh, was made uh, better than any place else I've ever seen by one member of the House who I'd like to quote. The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled this mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the President. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution, close quote. That was not Jamie Raskin, who's leading the prosecution in the Senate for the House. That was Liz Cheney. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, yes, she was one of the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach President Trump. And I suspect every one of those 10 Republicans is now going to get a primary challenge from a more, from a, a, a pro-Trump Republican. And that has apparently scared the Republican senators who voted on Tuesday of this week uh, to try to uh, rule out any impeachment trials, saying that you couldn't impeach 
someone who no longer held office, which is a p opinion that most legal authorities completely reject. 45 Republican senators voted not yes. to hold the trial. For, 45 means, out of 50. Which means we can expect five, <clears throat> I, would you say a minimum of five or a maximum of five to vote for conviction after February 9th? If I had to bet, I would say a maximum, but you know, you know, you, you, you never know for sure. They haven't heard the evidence yet. Well, they don't want to hear the evidence, uh, you know, and I, if any of them are surprised by what Trump said on January 6th, I would be surprised if they're surprised. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now we want to talk about the coming fight against Trump and Trumpism, and for that we turn to Gary Young. He's an award-winning former columnist for The Guardian. Now he's a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and a member of the nation's editorial board. His books include The Unforgettable, Another Day in the Death of America, we reached him today at home in London. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I'd like to start with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Just to review briefly, for months, Trump had been calling on his supporters to come to Washington for a rally and some kind of protest against Congress, which was scheduled that day to officially declare that Joe Biden won the election. This was the culmination of Trump's effort to remain in the White House around the big lie that he had really won the election. So on January 6th, he gave a speech to thousands of people, urged them to march on the Capitol. They did. Most of the mainstream media say that what happened was an attempted coup, an insurrection to stop the certification of Biden as president-elect and keep Trump as president. But here's my question. What was the plan? How was that supposed to work? Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to find a word for this thing, right? It was definitely an insurrection. You know, it was a violent uprising against a, a legitimate government. I think the people who actually were involved clearly had no plan. Their plan was to, to see what they could do. And there was an, a, a significant amount of entitlement in that. They didn't think maybe we'll get shot. I mean, one person did get shot, but they, they didn't think maybe we'll get arrested. I mean, you know, which is why they put their stuff on Facebook and then quickly erased it uh, when they realized that things hadn't gone their way. But they get in there and there is no plan. They don't try and get the police on their side, although by most accounts, First of all, some of them were policemen, and secondly, they might have had a receptive audience there. Um, they're not trying to get the army on their side. I mean, when I think of coups the world over, this strikes me as something more ridiculous and something that, I mean, obviously it's important, and even though they take them, don't take themselves seriously, we should, but that it was the spectacle that they were after. And, and one way to know this is that 
they do certify the results, and yet those people who broke into the Capitol still claim that it was a victory, even yes. though the aim, the very aim of what they planned to do didn't happen. They still claim victory. Yeah, there was this uh, more scary moment where one of the slogans was hang Pence because Vice President Mike Pence, who presides over this ceremonial event, had rejected this nutty idea of Trump's that Pence could simply declare Trump the winner since he was the presiding officer over the Senate. And this led them to the, the, the insurrections to say, hang Pence. They put up a, a gallows outside the Capitol and they looked for Pence, but they couldn't find him. He was hiding. <laughs> so what do you make of this effort, this apparent effort to hang the vice president of the United States? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very retro, isn't it? I mean, we <laughs> yes. have to get rid of hanging. I mean, you know, I mean, America has an awful record of execution, but hanging, I mean, and who knows, you know, one jest, but who knows what would have happened if they had got hold of Pence or Pelosi or any of those people. But first of all, you see the shrinking base emboldened. I mean, we should not write these people off at all but shrinking, that if Pence is too left-wing for you, <laughs> if Pence is too liberal, if and and if you want to hang Mike Pence, then you, you've really painted yourself into a bit of a corner there. Well, I want to go back to your point, a very interesting argument, that even though they didn't stop the Congress from certifying Biden as the winner, they left claiming that they'd been a success. And uh, let's just for a moment... Uh, consider the possibility that there was a reason they considered it a success, They that they were so delighted at what they had achieved, that they had accomplished something which they were proud of, which was, I guess, that they could storm the Capitol successfully. And, and that for them, this is not the end. This is, this is a step. Oh, yeah. No, I think that, um, I think that there was a rationale for them saying we have shown our strength we have proved our viability as a fighting force we have shown we have proved our mettle and it's what's true is that almost no other protest group could have done what they did yeah they would have been gunned down that would have, that would have been it and so they have achieved what nobody else no other protest group could have achieved uh they have instilled a sense of uh, uh, fear into American political culture. They, quite small group of people driven to a large extent by some very weird conspiracy theories have established themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Now, you know, we can argue about how strong, how viable that force is, but when the nation's 50 capitals are on lockdown, when, Ameri when, when Washington, D.C., for an inauguration that relatively few people will go to because of COVID, um, is like a huge military encampment, then it wouldn't make sense to say that they've achieved nothing. They've achieved, yeah. they achieved in that sense, more than any of the legal challenges or, or any of that. So... They demonstrated they could storm the Capitol successfully, and that marks 
the end of the Trump presidency, but it's certainly not the end of the Trump movement. 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. Trump got more votes than any candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. I think we need to talk about what's the relationship of that small number, a few thousand people who stormed the Capitol, and the millions of people who voted for Trump. Is this the vanguard, or is this just a crazy, isolated fringe? I think they're definitely not isolated. And... uh... We're going to have to redefine fringe, aren't we? (laughs) It's not that this force is here to stay. It's that it never went away, and now it feels emboldened, and that there will be large numbers of people who will disassociate, who can, in their mind, disassociate themselves from that particular manifestation of violence while embracing the broader, what I would call, violent assault on America. On the other hand, uh, to, today there's news that Mitch McConnell, you know, the Republican leader of the Senate, s- says he welcomes Trump's impeachment because Trump did incite an insurrection. This is like the most powerful Republican in, in Congress who's been a complete Trump loyalist for the last four years. Apparently, he has made a calculation that the political future of his party and the chances of him returning to be the majority leader in two years would be better without Trump as the leader of the party. Uh, What do you make of Mitch McConnell breaking with Trump over this? Well, you know, in in the piece I wrote for the New Statesman, I started to say that they were jumping ship. Then I thought it's actually more like they are clambering out of a shipwreck. (laughs) The ship has crashed. And uh, there is this kind of thing, you know, where they see which way the wind is blowing, but it has to be blowing a gale before they do anything. Now, it's a gamble. It's a gamble that he's making that as to the the viability of Trump's base, the degree to which he wants to take on that fight. I mean, there would have been a realignment within the Republican Party anyway because the president's leaving. Just there was a realignment in the Democrats afterwards. And because Trump was such an individual, really, without kind of much much roots actually in the party. His his you know, his base came not through the Republican channels, not through the Orthodox Republican channels. So that realignment now will take place with this in mind. But I don't get a sense, and you know, you said it, Mitch McConnell was with him all the way, right until, you know, the last couple of weeks. He was with him for kids in cages, for all of that stuff. So the realignment will be around, unless there is a political, ideological challenge, as opposed to this, which is a, it's important, but it's a procedural challenge then there will be a realignment around the most palatable form of white supremacy and xenophobia that they can come up with. That what this, for a certain kind of Republican, what this insurrection did was give white supremacy a bad name and nationalism a bad name. And they want to return to the kind of white supremacy and kind of nationalism that kind of good old boys can get around uh, and that is can cohere as opposed to kind of 
divide. Now, that may turn into an ideological struggle within the Republican Party as to its future and what it might do, because free market economics doesn't need racism to operate. If there were no black people in America, you you know, you could still have a free market um, uh, economics. It would just be kind of, it would just be differently configured. But at the moment, that's not what I see. What I, what I see is a clambering off the shipwreck, a kind of um, a desperate paddling to shore and hope that, you know, not to overdo the metaphor, but that one last big wave doesn't come and just kind of sink them all. He's bad for the brand. He's bad for the brand. Gary Young, he wrote about America's Civil War for the New Statesman. Gary, thanks for talking with us today. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. For that, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor, longtime film critic and editor whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, the NPR, the Atlantic. We reach you today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you very much. Love the new title. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm interested in this new movie from India called White Tiger. I see that it is described as part satire and part melodrama. You have seen it and we haven't yet. Uh, tell us about White Tiger. And part action movie, which is a very uh, unusual trajectory for the director, director whom I've admired for many years. His name is uh, Ramin Barani. He's an Iranian-American. And he made his name with a very small film called Man Push Cart, which won a whole bunch of indie awards about a man pushing a cart on uh, the streets of, of uh, New York. Made another one uh, called Goodbye Solo about an, Amer uh, an immigrant from Africa and another one called Chop Shop, which I haven't actually seen. And all of those films are small scale, tender, acutely observant studies. This is something else altogether and it's getting a, a lot of comparisons to uh, Slumdog Millionaire, um, Danny Boyle's film of a, enormously successful uh, of a few years ago. It's not a very fair comparison, except for the fact that both films are about rags to riches. Um, but compared to what we're going to, what we'll see here, and it's highly recommended, um, Slumdog Millionaire was like a, you know, it was like a schmaltzy high society, I guess. <laughs> um, and I like Slumdog Millionaire, but it was it was very over the top. This is a, a bunch of shifting moods. It concerns um, a young, low-caste man. All, his only future was as a tea seller, um, as decreed by his very domineering grandmother, who he also loves. He reinvents himself as a driver to the son of a basically a mobster. 
And that son's, son's new wife, who's very ably played by Priyanka Chopra, uh, and ends up as a tech mogul himself, which is where the movie begins. <laughs> <laughs> as he tells the story of how he got there. By the time we see him, he's been refurbished with the proverbial ponytail that so many tech um, wizards uh, wear. And uh, his name is Balram, and um, he gets where he's gotten largely by endless fawning flattery and loyalty to his two bosses, the young man and his wife, and they are representatives of the new Indians, which is to say that they're mostly American educated. They see themselves as very liberal uh, and uh, in favor of equality. And they talk a very good game. But when the chips are down and they get very, very down, uh, there are two murders in this film. They are completely spineless and betray him despite his endless loyalty to them to save their own skins. I won't say how. So up close, it's a very particular and specific film that combines about four different genres. And I must say that Barani has adapted himself very well to all of those genres. If you draw back from that very particular action, it has a whole bunch of themes. One of them obviously is the issue of, of the persistence of caste even in the new India, and perhaps especially in the new India, because there's a very critical line in the movie where one of the rich perceives one of the poor as a representative of a massive market for um, lo-fi tech phones and other kinds of gadgets. So they're redefined as a consumer market mm. uh, for people with no, no money to, to spend whatsoever. So that's part of it. Uh, the other is the corruption and cruelty that persists amongst the Indian elite um, and that then trickles down to our hero, um, he is very well played by a young uh, Indian actor named Adash Gurav, who has to project himself as somebody we're, we're destined to feel extremely ambivalent about, because the way he achieves success is, is by becoming even more corrupt and cruel than his masters, which is not the sort of thing you'll see in, in Slumdog Millionaire. <laughs> so it's unusual material, unusual style for Barani, but he does uh, very well. The tones keep shifting and the moods keep shifting in ways that are uh, throw us off balance, but are also extremely entertaining and also very discerning. Um, I loved it. It's on Netflix. Um, and I think that the real comparison, although they're totally different in style and form, is to the remains of the day, <laughs> because which was about a butler who is also servile and loyal to his master, who sells him down the river um, at, at the end. There's a very, very similar theme there, which makes sense in a country... Uh, that was tyrannized by Britain for a very long time. <laughs> so that's White Tiger. For something completely different, you've said you want to talk about two films about gay men and dementia, each of which is starring straight men. I'm puzzled by this. Please explain. There is a feeling about both films that's way too careful. That is that the... 
there's somehow a little pandering to the general audience because it's not going to take us into very dangerous territory. Um, and both are, are dedicated to the proposition that, you know, gay men face the same life dilemmas as the rest of us do, which is true, but incredibly banal. <laughs> so the first one is called Supernova. And um, uh, both these films, by the way, are out in theatres this week, which means nothing. Um, but we'll, in the next two weeks, we'll be opening um, on the usual range of streaming uh, places, like Amazon and Voodoo, Google Play, and, and all of those. Um, Supernova, uh, which is directed by Harry McQueen, a, a, I think a new British director, and it's produced by BBC Films, and it has very much the character of a BBC television play. But it stars Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth as a married gay couple, one of whom, played by Tucci, is diagnosed with... Uh, early onset dementia and they take a road trip to see their friends of and family but the dilemma that comes up is is Tucci's character going to allow the process to go all the way organically by itself or is he going to take more drastic action uh, because of course there's no cure now uh, Tucci's character is a novelist uh, and Colin Firth's character um, is a, a musician. And this is because gay men, of course, never work at Walmart or Woolworths <laughs> or, or places like this. They always have to be artists of some kind or another, which makes made me giggle a bit. Um, they're both very good, but they're working with very slight material. Um, the friends and family are uniformly supportive and unfailingly jolly in the face of disaster. Uh, and there really isn't much else to the movie, except perhaps the cinematography, because they're taking a, you know, a trip through very beautiful uh, countryside. The cinematographer is Dick Pope, who um, has shot uh, most of Mike Lee's movies, so it looks just lovely. Um, but it's rather slight. Uh, Tucci's character is the sort of uh, ironic, uh, dry-witted gay man who's, uh, you know, issues pithy commentary on everything. And Colin Firth, if you can believe it, is a kind of fussy worrywart um, who fusses over his partner. It's perfectly presentable, um, but otherwise I would say rather inconsequential, and although I'm not a big fan of um, restricting who can play what in movies, in this case, I came out of it wondering, were there no gay actors available? <laughs> uh, obviously, those two are very big marquee on the indie market. The other film is um, feature directing debut by the actor Vico Mortensen. Uh, it's called Falling, and uh, he stars in it as um, a middle-aged gay man who's also married and lives in Los Angeles, but he comes from a rural background. And his father, who's played by Lance Henriksen very well in a, in a difficult role, who's been living on the farm, can't manage anymore and is clearly also in the early stages of dementia. So they suggest that he come and live in Los Angeles. 
The father was irascible and abusive when uh, Viggo Mortensen's character, uh, well, to his whole family. And uh, Laura Linney has a painfully undercooked role um, as uh, Viggo's sister, who's endlessly accommodating, as is Viggo himself. Lots of flashbacks to their youth and and how the father behaved, and the father is extremely right wing and and homophobic. And then there's a kind of showdown. There's also a, a little side attraction, which is the Canadian director David Cronenberg, who plays in a very small role as the proctologist of the father. <laughs> <laughs> one of his sly cameos that he often does in other people's movies. It's better than the other movie, um, than Supernova, but it's very careful, very repetitive. And Mortensen seems rather uncertain in the role. He's a fabulous actor, but uh, he, it does seem as though perhaps they're not sure what the point was in, in this film. That's uh, Falling. That's Viggo Mortensen's directorial debut. I think he also not only stars in it, but wrote it. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Supernova, the BBC drama starring Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. We've got time for one more recommendation. For this, I wanted to turn to Criterion, which um, has just uh, put up a series of films by the French, the esteemed French director, Bertrand Tavernier, who is a great favorite of mine. And I've been having a wonderful time rewatching some of his uh, earlier movies, which I love, um, and also seeing a couple that I had not mentioned that I had not seen before. So I just want to talk about a few of them rather than spread myself very thin. One, of course, is Coup de Torchon, which is his perhaps most famous film about a police chief turned killer. It's an adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel from 1981. Another one, which was one of the first movies I ever reviewed, it's called Life and Nothing But, which was set just after World War One. It is a marvelously nuanced and layered film about uh, loss and and regret. In it, um, his longtime almost muse, I would say, Philippe Noiret, who is an actor I just adore. He also played um, uh, Pablo Neruda in It Was the Only Good Thing About the Postman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's a in many ways, the quintessential unattractive man. I mean, he's chubby. He looks like a bloodhound. Um, (laughs) But there is something enormously exciting about him. He has a huge range of parts. He's very good at at playing sort of irritable characters, Um, comedy. He can do comedy. He can do genre movies and he can do drama. And in Life and Nothing But, he plays a... Um, an army captain whose um, job it is to account for and name the missing bodies from World War uh, World War One. It also stars Sabina Zema, and it's a, a really a wonderful wonderful movie. Came out in 1989. Um, the one that I had never seen before is a film called The Clockmaker of Saint Paul which is based on a Georges Simenon novel from 1974. I chose it in part because my dad was a watchmaker and there are lots of wonderful scenes of of watchmaking there that brought back 
memories for me, but that's incidental. Um, who plays a kind of widow, a widowed everyman. In fact, his wife left him and then uh, died, but he's constructed a, you know, a routine life for himself. He's got loads of friends. Um, and uh, suddenly his life is un upended by um, the news that his son, his grown son, has been charged with a double murder. It's very much Simonon territory, but um, Tavernier plays uh, this ordinary man who, um, in what is basically a psychological movie, whose life is upended by the news that uh, his son has been charged with two murders. And what the, f the meta text of the film um, is the, the changes in, in attitudes towards his son and himself. Um, a process that he undergoes that feel incredibly authentic in the sense that um, there comes a point in almost every life, I think, where so, so many of the assumptions we make about ourselves and how we've lived become completely overturned and we're forced to look at ourselves in a different way. It's really a marvelous, marvelous uh, movie, so I recommend it. Uh, I also just want to briefly say that what I discovered that, that might be useful for our listeners, if you have HBO Max, you also get Turner Classic Movies uh, in the bundle, which opens up a whole um, repertoire of classic movies. So our picks for today, White Tiger from India on Netflix is the big one that everybody's excited about. And the Tavernier collection on uh, Criterion Channel is uh, a real treat that we recommend. Uh, Ella Taylor, our TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.